Father, thank you for these words that you've breathed out. That by the Spirit we have words that are not only ancient and true, but are the very words of God, spoken with all of your authority, all of your power, So we read them not simply for interest in history, though they are true history. But we hear these as the words of life that point us to Christ. Would you use these words the way that you have said you will do? To gather a church, to strengthen a people, to shape us and to change us to be just like your beloved Son. To remind us, to warn us, to encourage us, to keep us. And so would you give us ears to hear? Would you give us a clarity of mind that doesn't ignore everything else happening in the world and everything else happening in our lives? but that does think about those things in light of what you have said. Would you give us wisdom to not only to hear, but to believe and to walk? We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you would turn your Bibles, please, to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. As we're turning there... There are a lot of books and articles and podcasts out there about how to grow a church. So, so some of those are by people who are, are simply looking and saying, in faithfully seeking to serve Christ, here are some things that I have seen that the Lord has used to allow people to hear his word, to hear this gospel. And then there are other books and articles and podcasts out there that are more from a sales perspective of here's how you pitch, here is how you set things up, here's how you plant the people in the audience to see that mass spontaneous baptism. There's a difference between those two categories. Before Jesus ascended, Back in Acts chapter 1, he had given parting instructions to his apostles. And he had said that they weren't to worry about how to build the kingdom. In fact, he said, you don't have to plan for how to build the kingdom. He said, that's the Father's job, and he's taking care of that. He'll he'll manage just fine. Instead, Jesus told the apostles to wait in Jerusalem for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus promised that when the Spirit came, the apostles and those that followed them would carry the gospel not only to Jerusalem, but to Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the world. And as we've worked through Acts, we've seen that promise begin to be fulfilled. So in Acts 2, as the Spirit comes with power, he brings Jews from all over the Roman Empire and beyond to faith in Christ. And many of those new believers stuck around. So we see a crowd of people staying in Jerusalem, which leads into questions about how do we feed them, how do we care for them, what do we do now that their families disown them. But others went home. And so churches began in Rome and in what's now Iraq and beyond. And when we 
we get to Acts 3 and 4 and 5, we're, we're reminded that there was opposition, but there were also thousands who entered this new family. We saw in Acts 6 that the apostles' wisdom and the church's love for one another headed off division. That they, that they were walking together in such a way that they did not allow a split in the church based on where did you come from and how do you speak. And we saw in Acts 7 a shift from opposition based on threats and beatings to an opposition that wouldn't rule out murder. And Stephen's death as a martyr opens the gate for violent, systematic persecution. And for those in Jerusalem, it may have looked like the unraveling of Jesus' promise. Jesus says he will build his church. And yet, we see them coming house by house, block by block, rounding up his followers. It's only been a few years. It's been a short run. But what we see in Acts chapter 8 is Jesus continues to build his church in ways that simply wouldn't have happened in a time of peace and quiet. Through this chapter, we see Jesus building his church through scattering and persecution, through attention-grabbing gospel power, and by the reading and the teaching of his powerful word. Starting in verse 1, the Holy Spirit says by the hand of Luke, now Saul, excuse me, now Saul was consenting to his death, to Stephen's death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. And so we see Jesus building his church through scattering and persecution here. Remember, Luke has just mentioned Saul in passing. At this point, if, if this is our first time in Acts, all we know is we have a young man who watches their clothing as others pick up rocks and beat Stephen to death for the name of Jesus. We learn later on that he's from Cilicia, what's now in Turkey. He's a Greek-speaking not from around here, Jew, just like Stephen was. Maybe we shouldn't push it too far. Saul does say later he was raised in Jerusalem, but he was born elsewhere. He's coming in from the outside. From his background, some have suggested that Saul may have been one of the people in that synagogue arguing with Stephen that leads to his trial. We don't know, but the background and the, the time frame is right. We find out later in chapter 22, Saul says he was a disciple of Gamaliel, the great rabbi. But where we saw in chapter 5, Gamaliel encouraging the Sanhedrin, just give this time, if this Jesus is a fraud, time will, time will tell. Let them die on their own. Saul is ready to speed up the process. He disagrees with Gamaliel here. Now Stephen's martyrdom may have been spontaneous, they didn't go in that morning planning to kill Stephen. But it becomes the starting point for a great persecution in Jerusalem. And so there in verse 2, some faithful brothers buried and wept over Stephen. By the way, that was illegal if he was counted as a condemned criminal. 
if he was condemned as a blasphemer, what they were supposed to do is leave him laying there unmourned. But these brothers identify with one who's been rejected and executed, accused of blasphemy. Just as Stephen had identified with a rejected, betrayed, and killed but risen Christ. But even as they buried him, notice there in verse 3, Saul led the way in making havoc of the church, tearing at it like a wild animal, working house by house, rounding up those who named the name of Jesus. The Sanhedrin had not gone in with a plan. Saul has a plan. He says it is time for these who name the name of a condemned criminal to be condemned. And the result was that the church was scattered. This verse 1 says that the apostles stayed put. They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except for the apostles. And some people have looked and said, well... Okay, so probably what that means is these attacks were more on people like Stephen, more of these Greek-speaking Christians, so maybe the apostles were safe. Maybe. But the fact is, the apostles have a job to do. Remember, at this point, there is no written New Testament. At this point, the keepers of this tradition of who is Jesus what has he done? What does this all mean? Is the apostles. That's why in chapter 1, Peter stands and says, we must replace Judas. The Holy Spirit demands that we have 12 witnesses that have been here from the beginning to tell what this all means. They are then teaching the rest of the church. If the 12 scatter... There's no way to refer back to them. They, they, we can't call Peter on the phone. We can't send a quick email to James and say, wait, wait a minute, does this fit in with the truth? Whether they are safe or not, the apostles stay in Jerusalem because that is their mission, that is their duty. But notice where the rest of the church is scattered. Throughout the regions of Judea, and Samaria. Now, one level, that's unavoidable. If you walk outside of Jerusalem, where are you going to land? You're going to end up in Judea. If you go a little further, you'll be in Samaria. But at another level, isn't it interesting that the church goes exactly where Jesus said they would go? So in Acts 1.8, Jesus had not said, you ought to go and be my witnesses, and you really ought to take a look at Judea and Samaria. In Acts 1.8, Jesus did not say, hey, why don't you put together a five-year plan for reaching Hebron and Samaria? They didn't need to. Jesus made them a promise. He said, here is what is going to happen. Acts 1.8 is not a mission statement in the sense of, here's what we ought to do. Jesus says, you will be my witnesses. He is calling the shot years ahead of time. And what happens once they're scattered? Notice verse 4. So Saul is locking up men and women, left and right. Anyone who dares mention the name of Jesus, he's coming after them. Verse 4, therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Therefore. 
because of Saul's attack, the church goes everywhere announcing the name of Jesus. As they're dispersed, they are telling the gospel. Uh, David Peterson points out, well, that word preaching here, preaching the word, isn't always standing up and giving a sermon. It's a word that we transliterate and make into the word evangelize. If we didn't have that word evangelize, we'd say good newsing. Everywhere they go, they are speaking of this good news of Jesus Christ. They didn't respond to persecution by keeping their heads down. In a culture where most people lived in their own hometowns for their entire lives, when they show up in this small village, people are going to ask, where did you come from? Why are you here? What are you up to? And their answer isn't about their terrible situation. It isn't, oh, well, that Saul guy's coming after me and I've got to hide. Their answer is, I have good news to tell you about a king who has come. I come as a herald bearing a message. It's a foolish message as we, we read this morning. It's a message that doesn't make sense to most of the people hearing it. I have good news of a king who is executed and humiliated. And yet it's a message that announces that God has become man. That he has walked among us. That he has laid down his life to rescue rebels and enemies. Is not the message that they would have expected. It's the message that we desperately need. And brothers and sisters, there's plenty of fear to go around in our world. At the moment, you and I don't face structured, sweeping attacks like the one Saul engineered. We have brothers and sisters in North Korea, in the Middle East, in Pakistan, and parts of India, that this morning, as they gather, they're looking over their shoulder. It's easy enough to see how these verses apply to them. We're right to pray for them. We're praying this morning for those in Algeria. This is not a safe place to follow Jesus Christ and to announce his good news. And so it's right for us to pray for boldness and confidence and joy in the face of persecution as our brothers and sisters face danger. But remember, the disruptions and turmoil in our lives become a platform for the gospel too. Remember back in 1 Peter how every kind of trouble becomes a proving ground for our faith. It isn't just the really big things. It isn't just when they kick down the door and say, renounce the name of Jesus or die. It's not just when the doctor says, I'm really sorry, you've got a week. Every trial, every sort of trouble becomes an opportunity to announce Jesus is Lord here too. Jesus is faithful here too. I trust him in this too. So when the doctors shake their their heads and say, I'm sorry, I don't know what to do. When Thanksgiving becomes Uncle So-and-So's chance to mock and laugh at your naivete for believing those Sunday school stories. When the boss hands you a pink slip on your birthday, and you have to walk home in the rain because the car won't start, when every trial comes, 
there will be opportunities to tell about a hope that is greater than the hopelessness that's right in front of your face. When things are falling apart at work, when things are not going well at home, when everything is breaking at the same time, we have an opportunity not to put on a plastic smile and pretend everything's great. And You know, that's really what I wanted in this week. But to look and say, and yet I will trust him. And yet he is good. And yet he knows me and he loves me. And this doesn't disprove that. This shows what he is willing to do to shape me to be just like his beloved son. We have the opportunity to trust him and to rejoice and to show others this hope wherever we are. Now, some of those opportunities to demonstrate hope and trust, we're going to see in the rearview mirror. Frankly, there are going to be times we come home from work and say, you know what? That would have been an excellent time to respond in every way except for the way I did. There are going to be times where we look and say, you know, that would have been a great time to speak up and say something. Maybe that would have been a great opportunity to not let them talk about how strong I am in the face of adversity and say, no, the only thing keeping me out from hiding under the bed, waiting for the end, is that Jesus is Lord. And I miss that opportunity. Brothers and sisters, when we do, we say, Lord, thank you that there will be another opportunity. That wasn't the last trial coming my way. You will be faithful to provide other opportunities. And then we keep looking. Knowing that our sovereign Lord will not let one heartache go to waste. Whatever else he does for the good of his people, one of the things he does is he puts us exactly where we need to be. Not only for our benefit to become more like Christ, but so that others who don't yet know him will hear. When the church scatters, they are going to towns that would not have heard that Jesus is Lord if they had not been driven out with Saul snapping at their heels. And the rest of chapter 8 gives us two examples of what this looks like. This morning we'll look at one of them, and Lord willing, at some point maybe we'll look at the other. If not, it's right there, you can look at it. But what we see starting in verse 5 is that Jesus grows his church through attention-grabbing gospel power. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitudes, with one accord, heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. Out of all the Christians leaving Jerusalem and proclaiming Jesus, Luke takes a minute to focus in on Philip, who was one of the seven chosen alongside Stephen back in chapter 6. Remember, this isn't the apostle Philip. Presumably, he's he's still in Jerusalem with the rest of the apostles. This is the other Philip, the, the one we call Philip the deacon. Whether they called him that or not, we don't know. But that role of caring for widows. And yet, as with Stephen, the Lord is using him to do far more than simply that role. He is, like any other believer in Jesus Christ, he is serving in more than one way. This is a man that back in chapter 6 was described as being of good reputation. 
full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. And so now, this man, as he is running for his life, shows up in a village in Samaria. He, he travels north. Okay. Luke calls it down. That's altitude. That's not direction on the map. He heads down to the city of Samaria. And that could be referring to the city that used to be called specifically Samaria. Herod the Great had renamed it 20 or 30 years earlier, but you and I know what it is to give directions according to where the gas station used to be, right? So he could be speaking of the city of Samaria, even though it now had a new name. Or he might be referring just to an unnamed city in that region of Samaria. It doesn't matter a great deal. Luke's point is Philip isn't in Kansas anymore. He is in Samaria, the place that first century Jews loved to hate. You might remember the Jews would spend days, they would, make, they would go miles out of their way. They'd cross the Jordan River twice just to stay out of this region. They didn't want to get their feet dirty with their dirt. Their dirt's worse than our dirt. The Samaritans considered themselves to be Israelites. Many of their ancestors had intermarried with other groups that the Assyrians had brought in. But the Samaritans said, no, we're we're Israelites. They considered the five books of Moses to be scripture. Now, there were differences in how they had translated, differences in wording, differences in focus. But they said, no, we're, we're, we're part of you. They worshipped in a temple dedicated to the God of Israel. And they waited for the prophet that Moses had promised, the one that they called the Restorer. You might remember when Jesus met with a woman just outside a town in Samaria, a woman at a well. And she says, we're waiting for the one who will restore all things. They said, no, we're part of you. The Jews said, no. No, no, you're, you're, you're kind of like the Gentiles, maybe worse. You've betrayed us by having the wrong ancestors. So those of you who have the wrong ancestors, make sure to fix that this afternoon. So the, these outsiders, these ones that the Jews would have nothing to do with, largely because of things that were outside of their control. When Philip shows up announcing that the Christ, the Deliverer, had come... And when he began to work signs that demonstrated that he spoke by God's authority, remember, miracles by themselves only tell us there's something going on here. Then the question is, what is happening? And Philip says, I am doing this by the hand of God so that you know that these are God's words and not just mine. He has their attention. As Luke describes what he does there in verse 7, he says that Philip is doing the same kinds of works that Jesus had done. Unclean spirits crying with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed. Many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. Some of these Samaritans may well have looked and said, this sounds familiar. Some of them had seen this before. And so, verse 8 says, there was great joy in that city. Not simply because of the healings and the exorcisms, but because of what Philip said. That's their focus back in verse 6. The multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip. 
But before that, their attention had been somewhere else. Notice in verse 9. But there was a certain man called Simon, who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great, to whom they all gave heed, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And they heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. So this Simon claims to be great. Verse 10 says, the small and the great agreed with him. In fact, they said he ought to be called the great power of God because of his astonishing magic. Remember, when we hear magic, don't think rabbits and hats. Simon has been doing the same kinds of things that Philip is doing, but by a very different power. Simon has been at work using supernatural power to build his own kingdom, to gain attention for himself. But now great numbers of Samaritans are moving in a new direction there in verse 12. But when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself also believed. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed seeing the miracles and signs which were done. So these Samaritans heard good news that the kingdom of God had come. And it was just what Jesus had told a Samaritan woman to expect. That the Father was going to be worshipped, not just in Jerusalem, but everywhere, in spirit and in truth. They heard good news that that this prophet that they had waited for has a name. Jesus the Christ, who's not only God's spokesman, but his anointed king to rule over all places and peoples. And so men and women, the the same kinds of people being arrested by Saul further south, are now turning away from the fake great power of God to the real one. And even Simon himself believed and was baptized as he watched in astonishment at what the Spirit allowed Philip to do. We'll come back to that in just a minute. But Luke tells us that Simon believed. He, he is astonished. says there's something going on here. But what does it look like today for the gospel to grab attention? Now we have brothers and sisters who disagree, but, but we understand that the miraculous gifts that Philip is showing that were on full display in those first few decades with the writing of the New Testament, we see that end. As we receive a permanent record of the signs and wonders that Jesus did and that the apostles did, as we get to the end of the New Testament, we see fewer and fewer of these miracles, of these signs that draw people's attention and say, what, does, what do these things mean? It isn't that the Holy Spirit ran out of power. It isn't that the Holy Spirit says, hey, I, I need to stop and rest here. It's that the Spirit's purpose for those displays of power have been fulfilled. And again, we have brothers and sisters who, who would word this differently, who would think differently on this. But as we read through Scripture, I, I, I believe that to be the, the, most, the most faithful understanding of, of what we see happen. So does that mean that when we read this passage, we simply say, well... That doesn't happen anymore, so time to move on. Nothing to see here. Wouldn't that have been neat to see? No. 
The Spirit is still at work, brothers and sisters. He didn't go home. Now His Spirit is seen, not so much through miraculous healings and chasing out demons, but by seeing lives changed in ways that lead others to ask questions. So we see that in or in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. If you want to turn to 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 5. As Paul writes to a group of Christians in Greece that have only been Christians for a matter of weeks at this point, maybe a couple of months at the outside. And he says, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction, with joy of the Holy Spirit. So you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out, so we do not need to say anything. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Paul tells the Thessalonians, you have responded to this word in power because the Holy Spirit has been at work in you. How do we know that the Spirit is at work? Because you turn from following one way of life to a totally different one. You have followed after us, and now others are following after you. Others are listening in and seeing a change and saying, what's going on up in Thessalonica? What is happening? Because they are following a different God, and they are facing trials with hope and with joy, and they are waiting for a deliverer, but they are waiting with absolute certainty that he will come. He says there is a change there. And so when people who knew you before you knew Christ, when they see you and they say, I remember what we used to do together. Now again, 1 Peter 4 tells us they won't always say thank you and please tell me more. But some will. Some are going to ask what happened. And when we're talking about Jesus to somebody that we haven't known as long, there can be a place for saying, here's what life used to be like apart from Christ. Now we're not talking about those testimonies where we revel in the kinds of wickedness we used to do and we try to impress everyone with how tough or wonderful or awful we were. We've heard those, right? The ones who say, well, I'm an ex-Hell's angel or here's my rap sheet or in loving detail here are the ways that I sinned. If our focus is on how good that was, stop and think. But we do see Paul periodically going back to mention his days as an oppressor and a murderer of God's people. So at the end of his life, he says, I don't deserve to be an apostle. I didn't have this coming. I was an enemy of God. I was a hater of God's people. And yet he showed me mercy. There's a place for you or me to say, I used to be, and fill in the blank, an adulterer, a drug addict, 
a self-righteous, perfectionistic hypocrite who went to church all the time. There is a place for that. But then we focus on, but Jesus took me in and is changing me, and he will take you in too. One way to tell for sure which, which direction we're heading there is when we finish our story, is that person left thinking mostly about us or mostly about Jesus? That, that, that may help us to tell, okay, where's my emphasis here? A- am I pointing the right direction? And again, some are going to shrug and say, well, that, that's nice. I'm glad that works for you. Some may look and say, how dare you? That's very judgmental of you to imply that I might need to change too. But some will stand in awe. Some will want to know more and say, I need that. And some are going to say, that's exactly who I need to meet. Someone who forgives sin, who rolls back the curse, who takes away guilt, who takes away death and hell. I need that. This Jesus still gets attention. And so as this word goes out in this city in Samaria, the apostles hear what's going on. And you'll remember from the Gospels, when the apostles had been in Samaria before, they were very uncomfortable. They did not want... They they walk up and they see him talking to a woman in Samaria, and, and their first thought is, what's he doing? Surely he, it can't be that desperate. Jesus, what do you need? We'll take care of you on this. In Luke 9, James and John wanted to call down fire to destroy a village in Samaria for not showing Jesus due respect. And so when the apostles hear, our question becomes, what, what happens next? How will they respond now? And we find that in verse 14. Now, when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who, when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, those verses have led to some very confused and confusing ideas about how salvation and the Holy Spirit and baptism all fit together. So let's briefly take a look here. Some some have read that the Spirit didn't come until the apostles laid hands on these new believers and have said, well, that must be the case today too. So do we need this morning someone standing in apostolic succession, an heir to the apostles to lay hands and give the Holy Spirit? No. Brothers and sisters, remember, when we read Acts, this is a time of transition. This is a book of changing, moving from one covenant, one way of living, to another. Luke is reporting what happened in the first years of the church. He's recording a shift from a large handful of Jewish men standing on a mountain listening to Jesus to a multilingual, multi-ethnic family stretched across three continents. In those earliest years, there were unique moments that will never again happen. One example of that is looking and seeing how the Holy Spirit came upon different groups of new believers. So back in Acts chapter 2, 
Remember, the Spirit came upon Jewish believers, men and women, with a sound like wind and with visible flames, leading to the gospel being preached in multiple languages as a sign that the last days had arrived. Also in Acts 2, about half an hour, maybe a couple of hours later, 3,000 Jewish men and women come to believe and are baptized, and nothing is said about similar signs taking place with the coming of the Holy Spirit. So 3,000 Jews believe, we don't hear of, and all of a sudden they start speaking the gospel in different languages that they had never, that they had never studied. I'm going to have to work on my English, looks like. We get to Acts 8. We have a bunch of Samaritans believe, but the Spirit doesn't come until the apostles do. But later in Acts 8, there are more Samaritans who believe, and we aren't told the same thing. Acts 9, verse 17, Ananias is sent so that Saul will regain his sight and receive the Holy Spirit. There are no signs and wonders other than some scales fall off Saul's eyes so he can see again. Acts 10, Cornelius and other Gentiles come to know Christ. The Spirit comes just the way he did at Pentecost with People speaking, again, languages that they had not studied. Peter looks and says, well, based on that, we need to baptize these people. They didn't receive the Spirit because Peter laid hands on them. Peter's still speaking, and the Spirit comes on Cornelius, and we have a second Pentecost. We get to Acts 11. Greeks in Antioch believe, and Barnabas comes up from Jerusalem, but nothing is said about laying on hands to give them the Holy Spirit. We get to Acts 19. There are disciples of John the Baptist that are baptized. They're moved from John's baptism of repentance to a publicly confessed loyalty to Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit comes when Paul lays hands on them, leading them to speak with tongues and prophesy. There is not just one pattern here. As we go through Acts, we see many different patterns, and that should give us a heads up. Acts 8 isn't the way that the Spirit works. You and I should not be, should not be surprised when we see something different at work. But notice when the Holy Spirit is most public, maybe we could say most outspoken here. So at Pentecost, there in Acts 2, there are signs and wonders so that everyone who's in Jerusalem, everyone who's walking by, stops and says, what just happened? As other Jews come into the church, we don't see the same public signs. This, the precedent has already been set. Jewish people are coming to faith in Jesus as the Messiah. They're coming in. Let's skip chapter 8 for a minute. When we get to chapter 10... Cornelius' household, we see a second Pentecost because nothing less than that would have convinced Peter that these uncircumcised Gentiles, these outsiders, are a part of us. They're brought in. That when he sees the same spirit acting in the same way, he connects the dots and says, wait a minute, these Gentiles are part of the same church. We get to the next chapter. When we see other Gentiles coming to faith in Christ, again, the Spirit comes. But not with the signs and the wonders and the public fanfare. Because again, the, 
that has already been established, Gentiles are welcome in this church. In Acts 19, we see those who had genuinely repented of sin and began to follow John the Baptist brought into the church. Brought to see the one that that John had pointed to, saying, here is the Lamb of God. And again, we see the Spirit work more visibly, affirming this is one church. We're not going to have a church of John the Baptist followers who also follow Jesus. There is one church. And so coming back to chapter 8, what we see, we see a bunch of Samaritans, these outsiders, coming to faith in Jesus Christ. How tempting would it have been to set up a separate church of Jesus Christ in Samaria? And they've got their own culture, their own heritage, their own Bible version, their own songs. You know, we have this long history of being separate. You know, if we force everyone to be together, that, that's going to be awkward. You know, there, there might be some Samaritans who won't come and listen because of that. There's some Jews that won't come and listen because of that. Look, it's just good evangelism strategy. Let's just let them kind of have their own church. Get kind of a local flavor going. But the Holy Spirit, by waiting, underlines the unity of the church. That unity is going to be the Holy Spirit's evangelism strategy. His strategy isn't, let's just make a local flavor that fits in and is more comfortable. It is saying these people from radically different backgrounds are no longer separate people. They are no longer divided by ethnicity or culture or traditions. They are being brought together into Jesus on exactly the same footing. They're not being brought in because they're Jewish. They're not being brought in because they're Samaritans. They are coming because they recognize that the king has come. The apostolic message has been preached, and now the apostles themselves come to attest that this is not going to be one body. I'm sorry, this is not going to be two bodies. This will be one body of Christ. These are brothers and sisters we're dealing with. In verse 25, when, when they leave this city, they go to other Samaritan villages, that same message is going to go out. And that's why in Acts 9, we see Saul receive the Holy Spirit three days after Jesus spoke to him. Ananias comes and lays hands on Saul because there's not going to be a separate church for ex-persecutors. This isn't going to be Saul left out on the doorstep until he can prove that he's changed. This is Saul being brought in very publicly and visibly into one family of Christ. But in the meantime, there's a new problem. There in verse 18. And when Simon saw that through the laying one of the apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. So Simon, the professional magician who recently professed to believe and was baptized, now wants a franchise in the Holy Spirit distribution network. He says, I will give you money if you will give me this ability, this power. But when Simon Magus, from the second century on, we've tended to call him that, Simon the Magician. When Simon Magus asked Simon Peter about trading silver for the Spirit, 
Peter tells him the cost is far greater than he imagined. Verse 20, Peter said to him, Your money perish with you, because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this your wickedness, and pray God if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you're poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. And Simon answered and said, Pray for the, to the Lord for me, that none of the things which you have spoken may come upon me. Peter says Simon's request shows he doesn't understand who he's dealing with. His heart is still set on being the big shot. Simon still wants to be the great power of God, just now under new management. And Peter says his only hope was to repent. Yeah, several, several years ago, I had a website recommended to me. It was run by, actually still is run by a group that intends to plant churches and strengthen churches. And for any given town in the United States, they have all kinds of census data, demographics, all, the, all this information of how many wealthy people, how many poorer people, how many this background, how many that background. And the idea is that they say, for your town, here are some things that may be helpful for making connections with people. It's well meant. And one of the suggestions, though, was when people of a slightly above average income show up, People more of a business background said they're used to leading and planning. And so the way you get them involved in your church is you hurry up and get them on a committee. Preferably within the first month or so, that way they'll stick around. It gives them a sense of ownership and involvement. And yeah, I want to say these are some brothers and sisters who dearly love the Lord, who are doing a lot of good things. This was not their best day. Because Peter says something very different. Peter says this is not an organization where you map out the, the career ladder. This is not the place for how do we get involved and work our way up the hierarchy. He says that sense of climbing and that sense of running things isn't the way you get people to join you. It's a way to be repented of. It is a deadly Poison is what Peter says. If you want to climb the ladder, Peter warns you, that says something about where your heart is. And we aren't told the rest of Simon Magus' story. About a hundred years later, Justin Martyr says that Simon went on to Rome and was worshipped as a god. But he may have been saying that because there were people in Rome at the time that said, Simon Magus is our spiritual grandfather. Whether they were lying about that, we don't know. When, Simon, when Peter rebuked him, Simon asked Peter, pray for me. And those could be the words of a man who had just been around enough spiritual power to know that he should be afraid of Peter, even without a heart that was changed. Or they could be the words of a new believer who hadn't changed as much as he needed to, but who was recognizing that something had to give. Luke doesn't tell us. He doesn't need to. What we do see 
is that the gospel cannot be front and center if we insist on being the main attraction. Whether it's done by magical arts or eloquent speeches or the way we dress up or the way we dress down, Christ will not accept competition for first place. But when we love Christ, he's the one we'll talk about. It won't be about how many plaques are on the wall, how many awards, how many this, how many that. Our focus will be on this Jesus who came to us, we sang this morning about both worthy and unworthy. Valued, not because of our goodness, but because of his infinite goodness. When we love Christ, we will talk about him, and by the work of the Spirit, some people will listen. Another time, Lord willing, we'll think about the rest of this chapter, about how Jesus grows his church through his word. But for right now, whatever trials come, whatever insults and threats may come your way this week, take heart. Because whether it's through hardship and danger, or whether it's through joy-filled stories of how the Lord is at work changing people like us, you and I have not been abandoned. Because Jesus will build his church. And the gates of hell will not stand against it. Let's pray together.